As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Well, welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today, I'm pleased to introduce you to Michelle Hunovan. Michelle is the author of four novels. Round Rock, James Land, Blame, and Off Course. Her books have been New York Times notable books and finalists for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and the National Books Critics Circle Award. Her latest book, Search, will be available for sale on April 26th and has been named one of the top 10 most anticipated fiction books of 2022 by Kirkus. High praise indeed. Here today to talk about Search and so much more is Michelle Hunovan. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Well, it's great to well, it's great to have you here. I'm glad we have some time to spend together, and I'm going to ask you the same starting question that I ask everybody who I have the honor of interviewing, which is, Michelle, where does your story as an author begin? Well, it begins in a camping trip about a month before I started college, and I was on a beautiful lake in Oregon, and for some reason, I thought. I know what I want to be. I want to be a writer. It sort of came out of nowhere. And uh, I'd always been a huge reader. And I remember when I was like eight or nine, I thought, I want to be a writer. And I thought, well, I can't be a writer because I'm not a man. And uh, luckily, that had changed sufficiently by the time I was about to head off into college. I was only 16 at the time. And I felt like I wanted something to anchor me. And deciding what I wanted to be and dedicating myself to that, I felt would be quite the anchor. You know, just a few things to unpack there. Number one, I've never been camping. So what am I missing, having never been camping? Well, you're missing a lot of work because it takes a lot of work to set up a campsite and to, you know, unpack and put up the tent poles and and, uh, find a good level spot. So that's kind of fun. I think. But there are beautiful things, too. You get to go places that and smell air and 
seawater features that you just don't get if you have to stay in a hotel or a motel. Yeah. Um, it gets you into beautiful corners of the world. Yeah. I, you know, the other thing you mentioned is kind of being 16 right before you're heading to college. And to me, 16 is a little early for school. Were you, did you skip a grade or what, what was going on there? Yeah, I uh, kind of grew up in an, in that very brief period of time where they believed in acceleration rather than enhancement. And so I did well in school, so I skipped a grade. I did well then, so I skipped a grade. So I was two years ahead. Got it. So when you finally went to college and you know, many of your peers were older, was that a difficult transition for you? or? Well, it's the only transition I knew. Uh, it was more difficult in high school because my parents were strict and my friends were older and they were in high school and doing wild things. And I felt like I wasn't allowed to do anything. Got it. Got it. Well, tell me, I mean, your initial instinct when you had this epiphany of you know, wanting to be sort of a writer when you grew up, but you're sort of the, the initial resistance was, well, you're not, you're not the right gender for that. Right. Tell me more about, about your thought process there. I mean, because I mean, there certainly had to, you had to have been familiar with some, some women writers at some point. Yeah, but I wanted to be a great writer. <laughs> okay. you, know, you know how kids are. Like I have a young friend who wants to be a writer and I'm not sure she really wants to write. I think she wants to be a famous writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was young, I think I was that way, too. I loved books so much. I just couldn't imagine anything more illustrious than being a creator of a book. Yeah. What were some of your uh, your favorite books growing up? Well, I was completely obsessed with Grimm's fairy tales. Also, you know, Beverly Cleary, the Oz books. I loved the Oz books, L. Frank Baum Oz books. Mrs. Piggle Wiggle, A Wrinkle in Time, Island of the Blue Dolphins. I'm all over the place here. I did like Dr. <laughs> Seuss. You know, sort of the standard fare. There wasn't the explosion of uh, kids' books and young adult books as there, as there is today. I think kids are so lucky to be alive today. They just have, they have these chapter books where they can get immersed for like, you know, a series of six or eight or 12, you know, and Harry Potter. None of that was around when I was a kid. Sure, sure. But I, I still found plenty to read. You know, I interview a lot of authors, and one of the things that I am, you know, that I've learned along the way is one of the prerequisites for being a published author is to be a very avid reader. Never, never ceases to amaze me how you know. Whenever I say what you know, where does your story begin? People always say, "Well, it began when I was very young, and I was a bookworm. I love to read." And then, of course, you know, they, they kind of turn that into a love of writing. But it is so true that you, know, you have to have that love of reading in order to really be a successful writer. I agree. I agree. And why would you want to be a writer if you didn't read? Exactly. So you, you go off to college. Now, where did you go to school? Well, my first, I was a college hopper. I went to three different colleges before I got my, my B.A., and the first college I went to was Scripps College for Women in Claremont, beautiful campus. And I took an independent study. They had no writing classes. I took an independent study from a woman whose name I've forgotten. And it was pass fail then, but I've never forgotten what she wrote. Pass fail and comments. She wrote, although Ms. Hunovan's writing improved over the course of the semester, she has no talent and should not be encouraged. Oh, well. Nothing like that to set you off on a successful career as an author. 
Well, I immediately thought, well, I clearly didn't work hard enough. That was my response. And that's a writer's response. I didn't know it at the time, but looking back. And so then I went to Grinnell College in Iowa and I signed up for the second semester I was there. I signed up for a creative writing course. And over over Christmas break, before I took the course, I made myself read 100 short stories. I was going to work hard enough for this class. So I read 100 short stories because I wanted short stories in my blood and my bones so that I, I knew what what made a short story. And uh, so that year, I won third prize in the college fiction contest. And the next year, it was $15. And the next year, they eliminated second and third prizes and gave the whole pot to me. So I was, you would think I was off and running, but <laughs> it took I, me a long time. Certainly high praise, though, and better than the response you got, you know, at the, uh, you know, your first go around. When you left college, what did you, what were you doing? I mean, what initial field were you working in if it wasn't writing? Well, I went straight to graduate school, but for years during college, during graduate school and after graduate school, I worked in restaurants. Okay. Tell me a little bit about that. What was the, um, was there an interest in working in restaurants or was it sort of, um, you know, what, what was available to you? Well, it paid well, it paid better than like, I also sometimes took temp jobs as a secretary, but I always made more as a waitress. I, I've always been interested in food and in restaurants. I, you know, I eventually became a restaurant critic. So it, uh, working in restaurants really served my, served my future. But one of the things that I liked about it, especially after grad school, I was working at a country club and I was a banquet waitress, but they also had me like, I have a slight artistic bent and I made all the posters for, it was a private country club and there were dances and things. And I made all the posters for that. They let me make desserts. So I got to be like the pastry chef there. They knew that I required a lot of different things to keep me interested and they let me do them. So that was a, that was a great experience to kind of get really adept in the different parts of the restaurant. Yeah, And I'd started as a waitress and I became a banquet manager. And that was interesting, managing people. Yeah, I imagine, though, as, as a working as a waitress, you get to have a lot of interesting experiences and meet a lot of interesting people that could be fodder for some future future characters. Did you find that? Yeah. When I was in graduate school, I worked at the Hawkeye truck stop. I was at uh, University of Iowa and nearby Coralville. There was a truck stop and it was a hard working truck stop. And I met a lot of interesting people there. And I got a lot of interesting things off of trucks. Um, <laughs> like what? Well, one time I went to my car and it was full of watermelons. Some truckers that I knew had they gotten a better paying load. They had to offload a load of watermelons. So some of them went into my car. I mean, I literally couldn't open the door of the backseat. They filled them, filled them up. It's hilarious. <laughs> what did you do uh, with all the watermelons? Gave them away. I also got a calf. There was a, a little Holstein bull calf born on a, a beef rack, and uh, they would just have been trampled to death. So they were sort of like, "Hey, we know you raised you've raised pigs. Do you want to have a calf?" I'm like, "Sure." So I took a calf home. Kind of never knew what you were going to get. <laughs> That's interesting. 
so when when do you start writing for a living? When do you you know when can you put sort of the sort of the the restaurant industry banquet industry behind you and start making a living as a writer? When I was a banquet manager, a friend of mine got a job at California Magazine, now long defunct. Also, it was New West, and it changed to California, and then it died. But for a number of years, it was a a nice glossy magazine full of decent writing under the editorship of Harold Hayes, who was the old Esquire editor. And my friend who got a job there just started asking me to write journalism for it. And I did. I wrote this long form journalism. I wrote a long piece on the Stanford band. I wrote a long piece about the urban coyote. And, uh, Meanwhile, I was getting more and more jealous of the restaurant critic because all they had to do was go out to eat and then come back and write about it. So I began to pester her to let me try my hand at restaurant reviewing. Um, All the while, I was trying to write fiction. And one of the reasons I got interested in reviewing restaurants was because the long-form journalism was sort of encroaching on my fictional work. You know, it, it took up the same amount of psychic juice. Right. Right. So what was the uh, what was the first book that you had accepted for publication? It was uh, my novel, Round Rock. I tried to write it for probably about 15 years. 15. That is a long time. Yeah, I even quit writing. It was so it was so hard to write that I yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. Each novel is teaches you how to write it. Right. And I was a slow learner. <laughs> So, you know, when, tell me just the journey of, of getting that one published. What, how did the stars align for you on, on Round Rock? Well, I wrote it and it was 700 pages long. And uh, I, I had an agent who had been interested in me and I sent it to her and Maxine Grofsky. And she called me up and said, Oh, Michelle, it's too long. You have to cut this in half. You you have to cut it in half. I can't read this. It's it's too long. It's too much. Lewis, Lewis, Lewis. It's just way too much. And I thought, okay. I took it back and worked on it for another six months and cut it by half. And I sent it back to her. And uh, she was famous for getting back to people right away. But a week went by and another week went by. And then she called me and she said, I'll get to it. I promise I'll get to it. I'll get to it next week. And this was like a Friday. And that Sunday, I came home from church and there was a message on my machine saying, oh, my God, you did it. This is wonderful. I'd love to represent you. And she later told me, this is another instance, she later told me that when she'd read the first draft, the long draft, that she had roundly rejected me that that was a rejection. It was too long. She couldn't read it. And uh, I didn't hear it as a rejection. Mm -hmm. I heard it as you have to cut this book in half. And that's why she was hesitant to reread it because she hadn't liked the first draft and she'd rejected it. I mean, but good for you for kind of, you know, not taking it as a rejection and spending the six months to trim it down because it is hard to, you know, it is hard to, I mean, I hate the term, but kill your babies. You know, it is hard to, to lose, you know, get rid of, you know, the certain aspects of, of a book that you spent so long writing and, but also good for you for following up with her and, and sending it to her. And uh, thankfully she picked it up again. What, what, Oh, hello there. What year was this? That was probably around 1995. Okay. All right. 
So, mm-hmm. so that the first one around 95 and then with each subsequent one, does she represent you for you know, your other work as well? She represented me for James Land, my second novel, and then she retired. How dare she? <laughs> but she retired. The nerve. Um, yes. So then I've had several agents since. Got it. Well, let's talk about this, uh, this latest book. Tell me what Search is all about. Search is about a church search committee looking for a senior minister. Okay. Or I say the elevator pitches how a intelligent, well-educated, well-meaning, kind people make some very surprising decisions. <laughs> so this is a foreign concept to me as a Catholic. We're not involved in any of that. We just get assigned people from, from bishops. But it sounds like there is some lay people involvement in, uh, in finding ministers. Absolutely. There's some discussion in the book about certainly the different ways of selecting ministers. The Methodists also appoint their ministers so you have kind of the arranged marriages, and then you have the love marriages. <laughs> and actually, searching for a minister has a lot in common with online dating, because you start by meeting, meeting people who self-present, and they present their best side, obviously. You know, and on one of their, in the application process, it's a thing called a ministerial record, and it's like an extended CV and it lists their education, their experience, but it also has all of these different places where they can tell a little story, like what's a mistake you've made as a minister and what did you do to correct it? Well, you're not going to say, you know, I gossiped about so-and-so and it got back to her. You're not going to say that to a search committee. You're going to say, oh, you know, my board felt that I spent too much time making pastoral visits, you know? Right. Right. Uh, yeah. You're going to say a mistake that kind of is a humble brag or something, in a, you know, has a little something in it like that. So I just loved how these little narratives sort of revealed personality and revealed character. And I was, I was really interested in, in expanding on that for a novel. Then now, did you have- um, oh, and just how people read these things and people chose their candidates and what individuals on the search committee wanted in a candidate and how divisive that could become. It really, it really makes the Catholics and the Methodists seem rational to have <laughs> professionals choose a professional to lead a congregation. Right. You know, they get to know the congregation. They know what the congregation needs. They have their ways of understanding where a church is. To have lay people involved is is really a mixed bag. Well, we don't get accused of being rational that often. <laughs> Did you have a personal experience with, um, with a search like this in your own life? I mean, I'm curious as to where sort of the, the spark or inspiration for this came from. Well, the spark did come from when I was on a search committee for an assistant minister. That's a one to three year position. It's not a major search. We were a very convivial small group of, on the search committee, and we agreed pretty quickly. There was no fireworks, no great disagreement. But what interested me were like the little narratives that I read and how people self-presented and how it was like dating. It had that sort of spark of personal interest in trying to sell yourself and the need for those of us who were 
evaluating them to look between the lines and to talk to references. And indeed, we did have somebody that seemed pretty, pretty close to being hired when we had to dig deeper on the references and found some reason not to hire that person. So that seemed like a little bit of detective work, and it seemed novelistic to me. So that was where I got the first spark. And then the other thing was, my church has conducted several big searches while I was a member, and they're totally confidential, and you can't get anybody to say anything. And so I just had to make it up. I had to make up my own search committee experience to satisfy my curiosity. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, I have some uh, some questions for you. Meant to be fun. Uh, really meant to sort of um, kind of get to know you a little bit more because, of course, I I like to, uh, as I said, get to the stories behind the story. So to start off, kind of an easy one. Well, you you can be the judge, Michelle. What are some of your favorite movies or TV shows? Oh gosh, favorite TV shows. Well, I loved Le Bureau, The Bureau, a French spy drama, really fantastic. And of course, The Wire. Who doesn't love The Wire? Yeah, I've never seen The Wire. Oh, gosh. If you like books and you like novelistic approaches, it's just fantastic. Yeah, I've heard good things. It's just one of those things where I haven't uh, I haven't made the time for it yet. What about like when you were younger? What did the younger sort of Michelle, like when you were a kid, any favorite movies or or TV shows from when you were younger? Oh, gosh. Let's see. When I was young, I loved uh, Gunsmoke. <laughs> and uh, I loved the movie Tom Jones, probably because I was adolescent and it was so kind of sexy in its funny way. And <laughs> Albert Finney was so cute. And I also loved Ingmar Bergman. Isn't that funny? Oh, sure. Well, now, was she in... Um, she was in... She was in the Bells of St. Mary's, right? Or am I thinking of someone else? No, I'm. Uh, you're thinking of Ingrid Bergman. I'm. I'm. Ingmar was. The, oh, okay. The, got it, Swedish, got it, got it. the Swedish film director. Very good. Very yeah. good. Okay. How about this? Some of your favorite musical artists. Any anyone come to mind there? Not really. I'm watching uh, the Genius series of Aretha Franklin. Ah. And uh, that's just spectacular. And of course, Aretha Franklin, Van Morrison, they're, you know, the singers of my generation that I, I think are just incredible. Sure. What's one career that you'd like to try that you have not tried yet? Gosh, that I would like to try? I suppose, you know, I tried to, I started out to be a minister. I went to seminary to become a minister and I decided to be a writer instead. But there's a part of me that would still like to, to be a minister. It's part why I wrote this book. I've always, I've never lost my fascination with ministry and ministers. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. Certainly a fulfilling, I mean, it can be a very fulfilling mm-hmm. career, you know, also uh, you know, getting, getting to work with people and just kind of, you know, having more insight into the human condition. To me, it's kind of similar as being a writer. Maybe not in the pastoral sense, but in the sort of the fascination with uh, the human condition sense. Well, it's uh, writing and being a minister are two of the very few career options for generalists. If you're just interested in a whole lot of things, I mean, that's what I love about writing journalism. You can just 
pick a subject and dig deep and, and write about it and you can follow your interests. Yeah. How about this? How do you feel when you're staring at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen, depending on how you write, with the intention of, of writing something? What, what emotions do you experience at the blank page? Anxiety. <laughs> Tell me why anxiety. Well, you know, anxiety is kind of the inability to make a decision or being faced with a decision. Sometimes it's patience. Sometimes it's anxiety. It's interesting because after I finished this book and I couldn't settle down to work hard on anything else because I was constantly having to do edits or get permissions or, you know, just to attend to all the little tasks you have to do after a book is done and bought. And so I couldn't write anything long and I didn't really have any ideas for short stories. So I had all these prompts that I'd given students, like 120 prompts I'd given them over the years and I'd kept them. And I just decided to write a prompt every day. So I got used to that blank screen. You know, it's just like, put down anything, start with anything. It's like you tell a painter, just make a mark on the page, just write a sentence and then follow that sentence with the answer to that sentence. So I've gotten a little better about facing the blank page. It's not a big deal. It's just what I'm going to write today. Uh, how about this one? What lesson about writing or publishing do you feel like you learned or had to learn the hard way? Well, early on, before Round Rock, my first book came out, T.C. Boyle said to me, you know, Michelle, you're going to get a lot of responses. A good review is a jolt and a bad review is a jolt. Everything is a jolt. And I'm glad he told me because it's true. You get a jolt. And even though he warned me ahead of time, I still got the jolts. <laughs> what does that mean? What does a jolt feel like? Just a real disturbance, like somebody just pushed you really hard. You know, you go from this very introverted, private world of writing a book to being out there presenting yourself like I'm doing here now. And um, I mean, I'm filled with adrenaline right now because I'm so unused to, you know, presenting myself, putting myself out there. <laughs> and so to have somebody react to what you've written and what's so personal is really like, wow. You know, even if it's like, this is a fantastic, wonderful book, it's still like, you read it? <laughs> <laughs> it's coming, come, even, even now, it comes as a surprise when people, when yeah. people say they like something. Yeah. Um, but writers, I mean, we need a certain sense of validation, I think. Like, we want to hear people's response to our work, you know, preferably if it's positive, I'd say. But even the negatives you need to hear as well. I mean, just as, you know, I'm curious, you know, you heard that first, you know, in that first school you went to that independent study professor, you know, kind of gave you some very critical feedback. It didn't get you down though. I mean, you still, you still kind of pushed on to, you know, to follow your dream. So to me, it says, well, there's two things, there's more than two things, but two key ingredients that writers need. One is, you know, feedback or encouragement. And maybe the other is, you know, persistence. Yeah, there was an editor, Ted Solitarov, who said, you know, a writer knows how to take a sting and make it into a stinger. You know, what do you do with that energy when somebody criticizes you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I'm curious, what's some advice you would give to an aspiring author? Someone comes up to you and says, you know, Michelle, I want to, I kind of want to do what you do. What advice would you give that person? I would tell them to write every day, set a timer for 20 minutes and write for at least 20 minutes a day. Otherwise, you're never going to improve. You're going to improve really slowly. But I know from years of teaching what works the best Mm -hmm. and writing, writing and writing works the best. And you know, they talk about flow, that, that state where, you know, the clock hands just turn miraculously quickly and it just spills out of you. That doesn't happen immediately. That happens if you've developed a habit of writing. It's kind of like running and getting that runner's high. A friend of mine said that she had to run for three months and three hours before she got her first runner's high. Interesting. And it's sort of the same thing with writing. You're not going to hit flow until you have a habit of writing and being able to sit down and concentrate. And that only comes from frequent, frequent writing. The last one up here is if you could write a letter to the younger Michelle and mail it, you know, maybe mail it to that teenager, that 16 year old who's about to go to college. What words of advice would you give your younger self in a letter? I would say write more than you did. Stop dreaming about being a writer and be a writer. Write every day. You know, right. Work really hard. Work hard, write every day. Well, very good. Well, your latest book search will be out uh, next week. As we record this, it'll be out next week, which is April 26th. Again, uh, mentioned or noted by Kirkus as one of the top 10 most anticipated fiction books of 2022. So congratulations mm-hmm. on that, Michelle, and all the best uh, with the launch of this book. Thank you so much, Mike, for having me. I really appreciate it.